you know, this time, this Christmas season seems to be one uh, where there are always gives rise to calls for peace. Everybody thinks about peace during this time. Christmas means peace. It means joy, like we talked about last week. It means love, and it means hope, but it also means peace. It's the word that we see plastered on just about everything, right? How many of you receive Christmas cards and peace is somewhere written on there? You go to the department stores to shop, and by the way, men, you still have today to shop for your spouse, all right? But as you go to the department store, you'll see peace, right? You see it on ads, right? Peace on earth, goodwill to men, right? It's all about peace. People think about peace. But it's not just during the Christmas season when people are thinking about peace. Peace is something people desperately need. We think a lot about peace when we think about the larger scale conflicts and wars that are going on in our world today. We think about the need for peace when we hear about the violent crimes that take place in our communities and cities. There is an absence of peace in our world. There's a quote that is often misattributed to Thomas Jefferson that goes like this. Peace is that brief, glorious moment in history when everybody is standing around reloading. Now, he may or may not have said that, but that seems to be generally true, right? Any glimmer of peace is immediately shattered the moment the next shot is fired or the next conflict seems to arise. There are many who think, well, if we had a stronger government, then there would be peace. Or if the right person uh, was in office, then there would be peace. If we had better laws in place, then maybe our communities would be safer. But the thing with peace is it seems elusive. It evades us. We can't seem to find it in our world. But how about on a personal level? We want peace in our life, don't we? We want peace in our marriages if we don't have them. We want peace in our families. We want peace in our workplace, right? We want peace from contentious relationships. We want peace from the family drama that surrounds the holiday seasons. We want peace from conflict and trials and difficulties in life. And there are so many things that rob us of peace or would seek to rob us of peace. Many things that crowd out peace from our lives. We find that during this time, many people's hearts are in fact troubled. They're anxious. They're worried. There would be anything but peace, some would say, in their life. And see, that's the rub. Because the matter of the heart is the issue. When it comes to the heart of the matter, which is peace, the issue is the heart, the very heart. Francis of Assisi wrote, when you are proclaiming peace with your lips, be careful to have it even more fully in your heart. Because that truly is where peace may be missing. Peace has a lot more to do with the absence of conflict, at least the kind of peace that we genuinely want in life. The kind of peace that we desire most in life is not just an emotional state of bliss. It's not just the absence of conflict outside of us. The kind of peace we desperately want is not the peace that comes from just making positive confessions or positive declarations in our life. Peace, peace, peace. Betsa was sharing with me uh, someone standing in line with her yesterday 
and uh, someone in front of her was going, trying to get all these coupons applied, and the person behind her was like declaring, patience, 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 right? Peace was gone from her life in that moment, and I get that. I feel the same way at times. It doesn't come, that kind of peace doesn't come from going on an extended vacation, though many of us would like, yeah, we'd like that very much. No, real, true, and lasting peace only comes from knowing the one who is peace and the one who brings us the peace we long for. See, the peace that he brings is not one that can be shattered by any conflict that rages around us. It's not a peace that can be shattered by the lack of peace in other people's lives and how that might impact us. The peace he brings is real. It's a peace that is produced on the inside of us, in our heart, one that is unmistakable and one that is unshakable. Now, our Advent series has been focused on how the birth of Jesus brings hope and joy and love and peace for the weary world. And we've been talking about each week why the world is weary. It's weary because of the darkness introduced in our world because of man's sin and rebellion. The world is not as how God intended for it to be. The reason there is an absence of peace is because there is very real warfare. There's real warfare. In fact, it's the longest lasting conflict in the history of mankind. A conflict that started all the way back in the garden and persisted until the time of the coming of Christ. It's a real war between rebellious humanity and a holy and just God. I don't know if you know this, but the Christmas story is a war story. How many of you like war stories? Two of you. I love war stories. Christmas is a war story. I know we don't see that because see, we, we see the cute little cherub-looking baby lying in the manger. And we're like, oh, how cute. Christmas, at its heart, is a war story. In fact, the war is the reason there is a Christmas at all in the first place. And the birth of Jesus is a signaling that the end of the war was near. It was coming to an end. Because God, through Christ, emerges as the victor, And as a result of that, there can be true and lasting peace for us and true and lasting peace here on earth. Now, today what I want to do uh, is focus on a part of the story of Christmas that actually takes place prior to the birth of Jesus. It's one that is an announcement of his coming, and it's about another birth, the birth of another baby. I'm going to call him the baby before the baby, okay? That was the initial sign of the long-awaited time that the people of God had been waiting for, that that time had come, okay? That promise of salvation, that promise of peace through the Lord's servant was on the horizon. We know that this time of Advent is one where we enter into that waiting and longing and anticipation of the people of God, waiting on the fulfillment of God's promise Because his coming would mean peace for the weary world. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 67 through 79. Hear the words of the living God. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, 
Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. These are the words of the Lord. Let me give you a little background of the dark times in Israel's history that surrounds the Christmas story. Right here at the beginning of what to us is the first century, right? God, God's people were in tumultuous times. They found themselves under occupation, under a state of oppression by the Roman Empire, a pagan empire. Now, this was just the latest iteration in the long history of the people of God of Israel where they found themselves under subjugation to a pagan nation. Humiliation after humiliation, captivity and servitude. The Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Egyptians, the Syrians. All of those had oppressed the people of God. And now they found themselves under Roman rule and occupation. They could not worship as freely their God as they had wanted to. Now Luke, the writer of this gospel, starts his story in verse 5 like this. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. Now he's setting this at a particular time in the history of the people of God with this statement. They were under the rulership of Herod. He was the supposed king of that region. A couple things you need to know. First of all, Herod wasn't even a real king. Like He was the puppet ruler that Rome had set in place to try to keep the Jewish people in line. But he wasn't even Jewish. He certainly did not have the right to be king of Israel. He was not of the line of David. In fact, he wasn't of any of those lines. He was actually of the lineage of Esau. All right? So that would have been a huge offense to the people of God. He had no rightful claim to the throne. And he was a wicked man, a cruel and degenerate individual who led people into idolatrous worship. And these were the conditions surrounding the time of the coming of Jesus. So now Luke does something here. He contrasts that particular individual by now presenting to us a very humble couple by the name of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, who was Zechariah? Well, Zechariah was a priest. He was a servant of the Lord. He served uh, at the temple, doing the priestly duties, okay? And Luke writes this about them. He writes that both of them were righteous before God, 
walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Unlike Herod, these were people who feared the Lord, who worshipped God. They were, by all accounts, good and faithful people. But there's something we're told about Elizabeth, and that's that she was barren. She could not bear children, and she was advanced in age. Now, in that time, to not have kids would have been something that was a sort of a stigma. It was a sign almost like that person was out of favor with God or God was not favoring them by granting them children. But isn't it amazing here that they remain faithful to God even though she was barren? Now, something happens here. Zechariah, through the casting of lots, gets to perform a priestly duty that would have been a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for most of the priests. There would have been thousands and thousands of priests. And at this time, a certain priest would be selected by the casting of lots where they could actually go inside the temple, inside to the holy place, not the holy of holies, but the holy place to burn incense on the altar of incense. Would have been an a tremendous privilege for someone like Zechariah. Some priests actually never even got this opportunity. But now it wasn't luck, was it? Right, this was his appointed time because God was about to do something there. Now, he's inside burning the incense. He is praying. Everyone outside of the temple is praying. And he receives a visit from the angel of the Lord. Now, this is one of the four recorded instances in the Gospels in this time surrounding the birth of Jesus, where there was some angelic visitation. We talked about that last week. The first one we find in Matthew, where an angel appears to Joseph in a dream, and then we have three angelic visitations here in Luke's gospel, and here's one of those three in Luke's gospel. He's in the temple, he's praying, the smoke clears to some degree, and he sees an angel of the Lord. And what's his response? Well, just like we looked at last week with the shepherds, the only right response in that moment is to soil your underpants. He's terrified. Yeah, ill is right. He soils his underpants. He's terrified. He's afraid to see this, this celestial being show up, and he knows it's an angel of the Lord, a visit from an angel that he would definitely not have been expecting. Now, if you read the Old Testament, there are a lot of angelic appearances. There's a lot of supernatural things that we see happening, but this particular appearance is astounding on a variety of levels, and why Zechariah, would, this would be the last thing he would expect. If you know a little bit about the history of what's taking place here, God had not spoken directly to his people in over 400 years. Centuries have gone by, not a word from any of the prophets of the Lord, No angelic visitations, no angelic messengers speaking to the people of God. No supernatural signs and wonders to let them know that God was still doing his things. No, no, they're right now in a state of occupation and oppression. Wondering, when is the promise of God going to be fulfilled? And here Zechariah receives this angelic messenger. Now, like the story with the shepherds who saw the angel of the Lord and he appeared to them. Yeah, they were terrified, but the the angel speaks and he says, do not be afraid. Don't fear. Again, he's bringing good news. He's He's not a bringer of bad news, thankfully. He's bringing good news. 
And look what he tells him. He says, listen, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. That would be good news to hear. What prayer was that? I think it's the prayer for a child. Zechariah and Elizabeth, that's one of the things they wanted the most. We don't know how long. We know she was advanced in years. I don't know what that is in lady years. Maybe that was 30. I don't know. I'm not going to even go higher than that. Okay? For men, that would be 60 plus. I'd still fall under that, so I'm going to count myself as a younger man. All we know is they're older. All we know is they're probably beyond childbearing years. We don't know, but they had been praying. And here the angel says, God has heard your prayers. Your prayers have come to the throne of God. They've been heard. An answer is on the way. That would have been glorious. I don't know if they had lost hope in the promise. I don't know what they were praying for. Maybe it was like they had resigned themselves to a childless existence. I don't know. But to hear that must have been great cause of joy for Zechariah. But I do know this. That would not have been the only thing they would have been praying for because these were good and faithful and righteous people. We're told that. What else would they have been praying for? For the Messiah. For the coming of the Lord's servant, the promised deliverer. They would have been praying for that. And this angel says, your prayer, your prayer has been heard. And he tells them this, that the baby that will be born to them is the fulfillment of the very last word God has spoken to his people through the prophet Malachi. Read that. Those last lines of your Old Testament, that was 400 years before the very next time the Lord speaks through his angel to Zechariah. So this is, I'm just going to say this as an aside to some of you. Maybe you've stopped praying for something. Don't stop praying. God hears your prayers. Keep praying. Keep praying. Trust God. Believe God. We have a God who does answer prayers. Amen? I believe answered prayer is the default. Right? Not the exception, but the rule. We don't always know everything. Right? We're told to pray according to the will of God. That's why anytime you pray God's word, you can be assured that will happen. God hears. God answers prayer. So their prayer is heard. What they've been praying for, what they're longing for. And now he hears this, this baby that's going to be born to Elizabeth. Well, he's the last prophet. He's the very last one. God promised through Malachi to send someone who would prepare God's people for the coming of the Messiah. He would be the forerunner. He would precede the Lord's servant. So this child born to them would be the harbinger of the Messiah. Now here's a distinction between the angelic vision of the shepherds and this one. The shepherds immediately believe the angelic message and they go off to look for this baby lying in a manger. What does Zechariah do? He begins to rationalize this thing. How's that going to be? I'm kind of an old dude. And Lizzie, she's a tad bit on the older side. I think he had to be careful as well what he said there. He doubted. He didn't immediately believe that. Now, I know you and I would go, oh, man, if an angel appeared to me, I would immediately do, mm mm-mm. No, I, I, don't, I think we probably would be more like this. I, I would hope that would be the case, but no. doesn't believe, and as a consequence of that, he loses his ability to speak for the entire duration 
of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And I know some of you wives have been praying for that and wondering, how can we make that happen? Silence for nine months. But no, he, he doubts. He doesn't believe what God is telling him. And he's mute. Now, God's using this as a sign, right? Because he comes out of the temple, and it's evident something happened in there. When he comes out, because he had been delayed for some time, we don't know how long this took place and and what happened here, but he comes out, and he's like, "Mm," you know, he can't speak. He's mute. And all the people know, like, well, he could talk when he went in. Something happened. So he's, like, doing charades or something to try to express what happened, what took place, what he had seen, and, and it became apparent. He had had a vision while he was in there. Something profound had happened inside the temple while he was serving the Lord. Well, he finishes his duty, and he heads back home, and I don't have to spell the rest of it out for you. Nine months goes by, and Elizabeth finally conceives. After all of those years of hoping and longing and praying for a child, And when her baby is born, she exclaims in Luke chapter 1, there, look what the Lord has done for me. He has looked upon me with favor and taken away my shame and disgrace. To me, this is one of the most beautiful parts, as an aside, one of the most beautiful parts of the Christmas story because it, it foreshadows exactly what Jesus comes to do. He removes our shame and disgrace caused by our sin and rebellion. So it's a beautiful portion of the story there. I encourage you to to read that, right? So here's where our passage picks up. The baby is born to Elizabeth and and, and Zechariah, and it's eight days goes by, and it's time to present him in the temple to be circumcised. Now, Zechariah can't speak, and everyone is like, okay, what's the baby's name? And they're expecting the baby's name to be Junior, okay? Named after his, his daddy, Zechariah. And Elizabeth says, no, his name is John. And like, John? You don't have anyone named John. Someone in your family named John. And so they're trying to motion to Zechariah, like, what do you want to name him? And he asks for an iPad so he can scribble out there, you know, and he says his name is John, right? His name is John, right? And, and in that moment, suddenly after nine months of not being able to speak, his tongue is loose, like he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he begins to bless God, and he bursts out in prophetic song. I know your translation says that he said, but uh, many from the early church believe that this was expressed as a song. In fact, the ancient church called it the Benedictus, right? It's Latin for blessed, which is the first uh, words of this particular prophetic song. And so this is our passage that we're going to look at today, Um, and it contains two parts. We don't have time to go through this in detail, but this first part is an expression of the longing and hope of the people of God, what they had been waiting for for all these years. Right? It's, an ex- it's expressed as a thanksgiving for the realization of the hope that has come for the promised Messiah. 2,000 years have gone by since that promise was made to Abraham that you see referenced in this song here. 2,000 years. That is a very long time to wait And now Zechariah is praising God because the moment, the moment has come. And the second part of the song is Zechariah prophetically singing to his baby. Isn't that awesome? I know some of your parents love to sing songs to your your kids. I I can't sing very good, but I used to sing to Arielle. Betsa would sing beautifully to her. Some of you 
sing to your children, right? Lullabies and other songs. Well, this is a song to his baby. And in that song, he's actually giving him his job description. The baby, before the baby, has a very special and important role in God's plan of redemption. He'd be that last prophet heralding the coming of Messiah, preparing God's people, preparing for the one who would bring peace. Now, there's a lot in this prophecy, but there's a central and glorious truth that emerges here. And that is that God is visiting and redeeming his people by bringing salvation for them. I want to focus for a moment on that word visit. Like, What does that mean, right? So when we think of someone coming to us for a visit, we think of someone who's just coming over to hang out and stay at our homes late and eat all our food, right? That, that's someone visiting us here. But in the context of prophetic literature, right, all the, all the prophecies in the Old Testament and what Zechariah's prophesying here, that word for God visiting his people is God coming to his people with the express purpose of rendering aid. God's not just coming to hang out with his people. God's not coming to eat our food and raid our pantry. Watch movies with us. He is coming for rescue. He is coming because why? He has seen the distress of his people. He has seen their misery. He has seen their weariness. They're in the midst of this war because of their rebellion and sin. And all of the detrimental effects that sin has in someone's life and in the world. Right? So he sees that. He's moved with compassion to act. And he's going to personally intervene to relieve the misery of his people. Now, when someone you know is sick, when someone you know is not doing well, what do you do? You ask them, hey, we say we're praying for you, we pray for them, but we also say, is there anything we can do to help? Right? We see their condition, we see their distress, we see their misery. What do we want to do? We want to help. We want to render assistance. And this is what God is doing by visiting his people. See, the birth of Jesus, right, the sending of his son, is God personally getting involved in rendering aid to his chosen people. See, this, recall the angel that appears to Joseph in a dream. And he tells him, the baby that's going to be born to Mary, he's, this is his name. What's his name? Jesus. He tells him the baby's name. Just like the angel tells him here, right, he says the baby's name is going to be Jesus. Why? Why is his name Jesus? Matthew chapter 1, for he will save his people from their sins. I don't know if you know this, but salvation is in Jesus' name. It's in the name, like literally in the name. Yeshua in the Hebrew means Yahweh saves, or Yahweh is salvation. He came to save See, when God comes to visit his people, he's not just texting, I hope you get well soon, guys. He's coming for a full-on rescue and deliverance from our wearying sin sickness. And praise God for that. Because it's what God's people had been waiting for, anticipating, longing for. They express it like this in Isaiah 25, 9. 
It will be said on that day at the coming of the Lord, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That's what they were waiting for. I know we say, yes, they were waiting for someone to deliver them from their oppressors. That's all well and true. But there was a general understanding, right, to the faithful people of God that that salvation would be something far greater than just something external to them. Just them being restored to their land. Just them being free from oppression by pagan nations. God was going to do something far greater. His visitation would bring true, genuine salvation. That's what they needed most. And that is exactly what God provided. That baby before the baby. Right? That one, John, was going to announce that that baby, Jesus, was the promised one. And this is why this is such a joyful and exuberant song of praise from Zechariah. Now, the last part of this prophecy in these remaining moments is what I want to highlight as to how Jesus brings peace for the weary. And it's there in verse 79. Because he's talking about the sunrise that comes from on high. He's talking about the dawning. Right? The coming of Messiah is like the light of daybreak. As the sun begins to peek over the horizon, there's that glow that begins to illumine the darkness. And he's saying here, verse 79, he's going to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. So how is it that the coming of Christ puts us on this path of peace? Well, I've said there's a war. He puts us on the path of peace by winning that war. See, that's what he does in his coming. This war that's been raging since the dawn of time, right? He comes to win that war. And in winning that war, he wins peace for the weary. And he did that by becoming our peace offering. And that's what I want to talk about for the next few minutes. Now, what is a peace offering? I think generally we know what that is. Uh, maybe you husbands have gotten into an argument with your wife and you go to bed a little angry with one another, like back to back, right? One's facing one way, you're facing the other. You're not talking to one another. You're kind of silently fuming. You shouldn't do that, but it does happen, right? And you get up to go to work the next day and you storm out of the house because you're still ticked off for whatever reason it was, but somehow common sense prevails throughout the day. And on your way home... You stop by and get some flowers or a necklace or some earrings or some other jewelry, right? And you come home and you present that to your wife. Why do you do that? Well, maybe it's because you were wrong. I know that doesn't happen often, guys, but let's pretend hypothetically you were wrong. No, what we do that, what, in, in hopes of appeasing her, right? That she would be more agreeable, right? So that there could be some peace and maybe we can begin to talk this situation out and everything goes back to the way it should be, right? Peace in your home. That's, in a sense, peace offering. The flowers themselves, the gift themselves is a peace offering, right? If she smells these flowers, she's going to remember how much she loves me, right? Well, in the Old Testament... The sacrifice system was set up by God as a means to deal with the sin of God's people. It was a type of a peace 
offering. The blood of animals was shed as a continual reminder that the wages of sin is death. I've said this before because we can't even begin to comprehend what this would have looked at, looked like. The tabernacle that was at the center and all of the people of God around it, you know, at the time of Moses up until the temple was built, sacrifices day in and day out. We can't even fathom the amount of blood that was shed. There was blood everywhere. That was a visual reminder before the people of God that this is what their sin produces. Produces death, and what's required to appease our sin is death. It is penalty and punishment. Okay? Death is required as satisfaction for the payment of one's transgression of a holy God. But here's the thing. The blood of bulls and goats and sheep is not equal payment for our sin. Because the animals did not commit the transgression, did they? They're not the ones who are guilty. We are. Okay? So it's not equal payment for our sins. It could not ever be a satisfactory peace offering to appease the holy and righteous requirements of God. But what do we know about God? He's rich in mercy. He is full of grace. And in his mercy and grace, he could pass over the sins of his people because all of those temple sacrifices, year after year, day after day, were all pointing forward to the true peace offering that would one day be offered. The once and for all time sacrifice at God's appointed time where the Lamb of God would be slain. That's the true peace offering. And only that offering, only that sacrifice could satisfy God's requirement and make peace with God. Isaiah prophesies of that time in Isaiah 53, 5, of the servant of the Lord, Messiah. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is so astounding to me. How God takes the initiative to rescue hell-bent sinners. Wretched sinners like you and I. Enemies of God. Hostile to God. Transgressing. Sinning against God. And he lays our iniquities, our sin, upon his son. And his sacrifice actually brings us the peace that we need and desire. There's a war. That war was between rebel mankind and the righteous God. And there's nothing that you or I could ever do to bridge that hostility. Nothing at all. What could you and I offer to broker a peace treaty With the holy God. With a righteous and perfect and good God. There's nothing. Nothing we could do. Well, I think of warring nations and factions, right? Who who want peace, right? Who want an end to hostility, right? And and they want a peace treaty of some sort. And in order to have that, there's got to be some type of temporary ceasefire. Hey, let's stop shooting at each other for a moment, Let's kind of come to the table and, and negotiate something. And, and maybe this temporary 
you know, peace treaty could t- turn into something a little longer lasting. Right? we got a war going on right now. Right? And, and there's calls for one side. Israel, hey, stop, stop shooting. The only problem is there's no calls for the other side to stop shooting. Why would anyone stop shooting? You can't have peace that way. It's when both stop shooting. Can there be some sort of peace? But all peace in this world is temporary after all. But that's how you broker a peace treaty. That's how something like that would come about. But, like, who does that? Who, who does something like that? We both stop. By, well, no, this is not what happened with God. We were still shooting. We were still, were still firing on all cylinders, shaking our fist at God, openly rebelling and sinning against him. And what does God do? He sends his son. He, he, he sends us his peace offering. While we're sinning, Christ strikes the peace treaty. And he ends the hostility between us and God. Look at these two things that, that is written in the New Testament here. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Think about that. When were we reconciled? When we said, hey... We're going to stop sinning against God. Nope. When did Christ offer himself as a peace offering? When we said, God, we're going to try to be good. Nope. While we were still enemies. While we were still dead in our trespass and sins, Christ died for us. God sent his son, whom Isaiah chapter 9 declares to be the prince of peace, to be our peace offering, to end that war. That baby, born and lying in a manger, came to die as a peace offering. Do not forget the bloody end of the baby in our Christmas story. We like to sanitize Christmas story. Makes us feel good, but it's not one. It's a messy one because of the messiness of our sin. We were enemies of God who've been reconciled through Christ's peace offering. Paul writes in his letter to uh, Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2, 13 through 17. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What was required for that peace offering? We who were alienated from God, hostile to God, enemies of God, the blood of Christ. For he himself, look what he writes, is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to this, to his who were near. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about Jews and Gentiles, okay? The Jews were closer. To them were given the covenants. To them were given the promises. To them were given the law. The Gentiles were outside of that in, that, in a sense. But in Christ, he reconciles both. He ends the hostility for both so that both can draw near to God. All because of the blood of Christ. And neither had anything to offer God. 
not even the Jew with their law-keeping and their rule-keeping could be, be an adequate peace offering or present an adequate peace offering, right? So neither had anything to offer God. So God takes the initiative to end the hostility in Christ. God was not in the wrong. God was not the offending party. He was the offended party, right? Yet, who extends the olive branch? It's God. God does by offering up his son. That peace he's talking about, you and I could never earn. Not on our best day. Not on our best behavior. Not doing anything good enough because there is nothing good in comparison to God. And that peace he comes to bring is not something that we could obtain for ourselves. No. In Christ, you and I are passive recipients of the grace and mercy and peace of God. And that peace cannot be found apart from Jesus Christ. Only by trusting in his work as our peace offering can you and I have peace with God and no longer be enemies. See, all around us in this world, right, are people who lack peace with God. They're alienated from God. They're still enemies of God. Some of you in this room might be an enemy of God. And you think, how could you call me that? Well, anyone who continues in sin and has rejected the peace offering of God is an enemy of God. We may not like to hear that, but it's the truth. And there's nothing in us that we could say, God, you have to like me and and be at peace with me because look how awesome I am. No, we've been rebelling since the dawn of time. We're at war. We may not recognize it that way, but that's the truth. That's where we find ourselves. So around us are people who lack the peace of God, right? And you might be lacking inner peace at the moment. Maybe there's conflict within and conflict without. But if you want the peace that only God can bring, it begins with knowing the one who brings us peace with God. It's not found anywhere else. And when you have peace with God, well, guess what? There's another kind of peace that comes with that, the peace of God. That peace, remember I said it's a matter of the heart? When he transforms our heart, actually real, genuine, true, and lasting peace comes into our life. That's real inner peace. Now, see, peace is not a state of emotional bliss, and it's not just the absence of conflict outside of us. It's something on the inside. It's an inner peace in the midst of conflict trials and troubles. Jesus himself said that he gives his disciples peace. And he says, I'm not giving you peace like the world gives because the world cannot give you this peace. There is nothing in this world that can give the kind of peace that Jesus became a peace offering for, to give us peace with God. The world, apart from Christ, persists in rebellion and at war with God. And on the outside, it may look like there's peace because maybe they're not fighting. They're not throwing punches. Maybe they're not shooting at one another. Maybe there's no yelling in the home. But that's not the kind of peace that Jesus says he gives. See, his peace is not an absence of strife. Because you're not going to have that in this world. This is a fallen and broken world. His peace is a condition of our permanent relationship with God. 
that in him, because we've trusted in him as our peace offering, we are no longer enemies of God, but God says, you are now my sons and daughters. A man and a son and a daughter can't be at war with their heavenly father. We are at peace with God. And as such, we can come to our heavenly father with our worries, with our anxious thoughts, in prayer, And God's word tells us that he'll give us peace of mind and heart. And you can read that in Philippians chapter 4. The peace I give you, the world can't give you. The peace I give you cannot be taken from you. Why? Because Christ secured it at the cost of his own blood. His peace offering results in a permanent peace treaty with God. No longer enemies. We're now beloved sons and daughters. Nothing can take that from you. But I want to ask you today, do you have peace with God? Do you have peace with God? Have you trusted in Christ as your peace offering? Do you know that there is nothing in you that could have obtained that kind of peace that only Jesus can bring? And so as a result of that, do you have the peace of God now? And I'm not saying we're not going through things in life. I know in this room, there's a variety of Challenges, obstacles, trials, pains, afflictions, suffering taking place. But in the midst of that, we have peace first because we have it with God. We're not enemies. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ. And secondly, he floods our life with his peace. The Christmas story is God ending the war and offering us real and lasting peace. And if you've not taken hold of that today... May I encourage you today to do that by trusting in Jesus Christ.